Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you move in wonderful ways, Lord. And like even though that you know we grieve when we lose a loved one, we know that when they know you, um, it is a celebration of life because they are moving from one instance of glory to another instance of glory because they are in your eternal presence. And so, Lord, uh, we uh, even though we grieve now, we thank you, Lord, uh, for your kindness and your goodness toward our brother Wayne. And, Lord, and uh, for everything else that you do for us, you are a loving, you're an awesome God, you're a generous and forgiving God, and we thank you for that. And so today I pray that you would anoint Uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, that they would be acceptable in your sight, and that you would move, um, and anybody that hears this message, uh, you would move them to hear from heaven what you would say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two weeks ago, I kicked us off on a series on um, basically spiritual warfare, which we're focusing on 2 Corinthians, because there's a lot that deals with the spiritual dynamics in 2 Corinthians. So, yeah, I, it was a long message. I built a whole framework that a lot of stuff was new information to people. Totally get it. If you want to go back and do the background stuff, it's on the podcast. Last week, Byron, or two weeks ago, Byron rolled us through uh, First Corinthians chapter, or Second Corinthians chapter 1. And so I'm going to pick up where he left off on uh, chapter 2. So that's where we're going. If you want to follow along with Scripture, I'm just doing Second Corinthians 2. Um, there's going to be like one or two verses that I might reference, but it's all going to keep right out of Second uh, Corinthians. <clears throat> so, whoops, get my pages mixed up here. Or I did not get my pages mixed up. Sorry, I had some uh, technical difficulties writing the document. The server wasn't working well. So I'm just going to start. <laughs> Paul's... Uh, writes to the Corinthians and says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love you. He goes on to say, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks to God, who always leads us as captives 
in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. <clears throat> okay, so that's, that's all of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So what we have, um, there's three basic things we're going to look at in this. The first one is, like even in this, it, it seems really innocuous, but it's there. We are involved in spiritual warfare. Um, Paul gets a little bit more overt about this in other chapters. Here we just get a little sprinkling, but there's, there's some important stuff there. The other thing is the power of forgiveness that's related to this. And then finally, we're going to look at the last part of the chapter and, and come to understand that there, there's a, what one theologian calls a turf war over the nations and the peoples of the earth between God and uh, the devil and his minions. There's a turf war that's happening. Because other references of scripture refer to Satan as the God of this world. And Jesus has come to overthrow that and to reclaim the earth as himself. And the devil's not giving up without a fight. So there's a turf war going on. And uh, we're caught in the middle of it. So we're going to break some of this down and get a better understanding of what Paul's talking about. And the framework, you know, the things that Paul knew as common knowledge that maybe we have kind of lost in the process. So we're going to break some of this down. So focusing on verses 5 through 11, this is what we can pull out of this about being involved in spiritual warfare. The context that Paul's talking about, forgive this person so that he's not overly grieved, and anybody that you forgive, I'll forgive. Most scholars think he's referencing an event in 1 Corinthians with a guy in the church who was essentially sleeping with a stepmom. And everybody in the church was like, oh, hey, look how gracious we are for people doing these things. And Paul's like, no, 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 this is not good. This is not good, right? So that's the context. So he's referencing back to his previous letter. He writes 1 Corinthians to them after he hears of that event. And now he's getting ready to come to them, and he's gotten some correspondence back. So he's writing 2 Corinthians saying, I wanted to write you this letter to give you some instructions so that when I do come, because I'm on my way, I don't want to be grieved, and I don't want to grieve you. Right? So let, let's like, get, get the house in order so that I basically don't have to come and order things so we can enjoy our fellowship together. So that's the context. So the issue with a, a lot of the movement in the church at large today, I'll put it that way, is that it, it's one thing to be accepting of people who don't live up to the biblical ideals, right? the biblical standards, it's another to accept those actions as okay and approved by God, right? And so that's, that's what we're looking at with this instance in 1 Corinthians, is that, that they were making the uh, dis confusing, accept somebody, in spite of all their flaws, to celebrating wrong behavior, destructive behavior. Uh, and so that's, that's the crux of what's going on here. As John Wesley, the uh, theologian that 
was part of the Second Great Awakening, or the First Great Awakening way back in the day. Once he said, uh, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And we see that happening over and over and over again. What one generation will tolerate, the next generation will embrace. Now, it doesn't mean that we're intolerant, right? We love, God loves all people. Everybody's created in God's image, and we have to remember that. And that has to be our starting point when it comes to any truth claims, when it comes to any interactions with people. God loves everyone. God created everyone in his image, and he has called them to be his children. And we need to start with that before we make any type of claims whatsoever. <clears throat> so we have this, this instance in 1 Corinthians. Um, apparently by the time 2 Corinthians was written, this guy had been recognizing the error of his ways, had repented, and there is some issue of him getting back into the community. And so Paul's saying, look, he's repented, he's come back, he's already been grieved, we need to let him back in. He needs to be reaccepted. And so that's what he's addressing now. He's like, yes, the damage has been done. The forgiveness has been given. Now re-entry into the community, re being re-embraced is the next step. It has to happen. If you forgive him, I forgive him. God forgives him. We build from there. We don't hang on the past. And that's something that, um, that, that Shannon and I are working with with our kids. So like, we have this whole like routine at night where during our prayers, there's, there's a few parts of the prayer. The first prayer is thankfulness, thanking Jesus for some things during the day. You know, it's usually something like, oh, we got to go to grandma's today, you know? <clears throat> but it's building that habit of being thankful because thankfulness is the way to get out of being in bad funk, is the way of getting out of, of developing depressive tendencies. It's the way of getting out of um, uh, uh, a sad mentality or a negative mentality. Thankfulness changes the way we think so that we see things in a more positive light. So we teach them thankfulness. Even it's like, oh, I got to go to grandma's. I got to eat ice cream after dinner. You know, highlights of their day. You know, there's six and a four. What are their highlights? You know, it's not going to be like, oh, God provided me like this brand new car. You know, it's, they're thankful that they got to have ice cream in the afternoon, right? So we work on the, the gifts of thankfulness. <clears throat> the second part, we bless people. Because it says, you know, it's better to give than to receive. It's better to give a blessing than to receive. And the whole, there's a whole bat, batch of scriptures about that. So we have them bless important people in their lives. <clears throat> Allie has like six people. Finn has like 16 people. So we have to like double up on the fingers. But, you know, that's, that's a whole other thing. So we bless people. After we bless people, we go through a whole forgiveness section. And it's really simple. It's, dear Jesus, please forgive me for acting naughty and mean toward others, because that's the language they use, right? Forgive me for acting naughty and mean toward others, and I forgive when others act naughty and mean toward me. It's really simple. They know it by heart. They say, I don't even have to prompt them. They say it, right? And that's building the language of forgiveness into their life. And then Daddy does a a protective prayer through the night, right? So daddy takes spiritual authority over the house in that last part of the prayer. What we also do in the forgiveness aspect is, you know, kids play, they hurt each other, they get mad at each other, they argue. So when it happens, mommy and daddy are quick to step in and we say, okay, what happened? We find out what happens. 
whoever does the offending has to say, I'm sorry for hurting you or whatever it is. I'm sorry that I hit you. I'm sorry that I caused you pain in some way or the other. And the other one, this, this is important, and it's important for us as adults to do this too. This has to happen because if we don't, we don't fully commit to the forgiveness aspect. We have to say, I forgive you, right? So if Alora hits Finney, right, and Finney starts crying, Alora, you have to apologize to Finney. Say, Finney, I'm sorry for hitting you. When she does, we say, Finney, now what do you say? They know the routine now. I forgive you. And what that does is it restores the relationship and it keeps bitterness from harboring. Um, and even though it's not easy to see, especially we sophisticated adults who rationalize everything that we do, when we use the words, I forgive you, those words were spoken. Right? There's that proverb that says there's life and death and the power of the tongue. So when we make the effort, even if our heart doesn't feel it, when we utter those words, two things happen. One, it starts reinforcing forgiveness in our own minds, even though we might still have to work through it for like the next week. Right? At the same time, what it does is it absolves the other person from being weighted down with the sin, right? With, with the offense. Because we as Christians, we're about breaking chains, not reinforcing chains. And so when, if Shannon does something that hurts me, and I say, X, Y, and Z hurt me, and she says, I'm sorry, and I say, I forgive you, she can start rebuilding her part of the relationship. She's free to do that because I took those chains away. The rest is on me. I've got to work through my own process. I've got to work through my own funk. If it takes me a week, it takes me a week. But me uttering the words, I forgive you, means that she is free to start rebuilding her side of the relationship. And it means, hey, I'm going to put my big boy pants on, and I'm going to take care of my business, and I'm going to fix my side. Right? I'm going to take responsibility for me. And so that's, that's important. Even as adults, like when there's a conflict and somebody gets hurt, that has to happen on a verbal level. If it doesn't, that's a chink where that unforgiveness can continue to grow into bitterness. And it dissolves and it breaks down relationships. So that's a non-negotiable. <clears throat> so anyway, that was my, my very, very long story about teaching forgiveness to the kids and how we need to practice that as well. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Paul, there's just one verse Verse 11, right? 10 and 11. Last part of 10. I have forgiven anything that you forgive in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? Verse 11 says this. In order that Satan might not outwit us, if we are not unaware of his schemes. I mean, there's like 10 words tops in that. That little thing is so important. So what we see here is there is an element of unforgiveness that is tied to demonic activity. So let's, let's pull that out. Right? Let's, let's, let's build that out. Let's look at that theory. <clears throat> Paul's saying you forgive so that you're not outwitted by the devil. Right? What that is saying is that forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools or dare I say weapons, we're talking about going on the offense, right? One of the most powerful weapons in defeating 
the works of the devil. If we get forgiveness down, like, he, he, a lot of his schemes are just rendered impotent. Like, he has other things, right? He's still got other things. He's still got deception and lying and all that. If we get forgiveness down, it takes a lot of wind out of his sails, right? So forgiveness is a powerful tool or a weapon in defeating the works of the enemy. And, you know, based on, you know, the, the, the framework of spiritual warfare that I built, the other divine beings, because there's not just Satan, right? There's other ones um, that's in this mix. And if you read through, like, um, anytime the, the words, uh, the sons of God appear in the Old Testament, particularly with the ESV, they've, they've done a really good job of pulling this out with the translations. You're talking about a conglomeration of divine beings of which Satan is a part. He's like, like the first, the most preeminent one, because he was the first one that really rebelled. And the, and the other ones kind of jumped alongside and said, hey, we're in, we're in on this bandwagon too. You can, you can go back to the other message about some of that. But they're all using these tools to undermine the work of Yahweh, right? The work of God bringing the gospel to us. One of the most powerful tools is forgiveness. Now, if we can tie this into some more scripture, there's one of those few references. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, If you do not forgive others their sins or their wrongdoings, your Father will not forgive you. So if it's, if it's not just... So maybe say you don't buy into the spiritual warfare of forgiveness. Right? Like, okay, Todd, you're kind of overblowing that verse. You're taking it, you know, to things that might not have meant to go. You know what? That's a fair critique. We can talk about that over coffee. But this is pretty clear. Jesus is saying, if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. So if you have any hope of growing in the Christian faith, of having any maturity in the Christian faith, if you have any hope of getting into heaven, forgiveness is a non-negotiable. has to happen. To the degree that we are not offering forgiveness to others who wrong us is the same degree that God will withhold forgiveness to us. That's important. Because this is, now we're getting to our personal lives and eternity being on the stake, right? Like, if we're not forgiving, then we're not walking in the fullness of Christ. It's just not happening. And it won't happen until we get that down, until we put the hard work into being able to do it. So due to the importance of forgiveness, now we know, okay, Satan understands that one of the ways that he can undermine people's entry into heaven is with that slow, festering seed of unforgiveness planted in our hearts. It doesn't take much. There's good soil, right? Put it in there. What happens to a good seed? Yields fruit. 30, 60, 100 times, right? Good fruit and bad fruit. We let that fruit, we let that seed get put in there. And wham, he's got us. So, forgiveness is a tool against the devil. Unforgiveness is their tool against Jesus. Because remember, their goal, they know their, their time is limited. Right? They know their time is limited. So what's the best way they can prolong their judgment? Preventing the gospel from spreading. 
Because once the gospel hits everybody it's intended to hit, right? Once the gospel spreads to, as Jesus says, all the nations, once the gospel is fully spread, their time is limited. And that's when their judgment comes. So if they can prolong that, they prolong their inevitable end. So their one goal is to keep people from coming into the fullness of Christ as much as possible. One of the best tools they can do that with is unforgiveness. If they can harbor unforgiveness, even to people in the church, they can hinder the work of the gospel. And when we hinder the work of the gospel in our lives, dare I say, through unforgiveness, we can also hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Well, that renders the gospel impotent. And it's a master plan. Right now, clearly God's more powerful and God's going to flick him out with very much ease. But the goal, their goal isn't to conquer Yahweh. They know they can't do that. Their goal is to drag as, other, as many other people to hell as they possibly can. Right? To total destruction. So the devil knows they can do that. They know that with unforgiveness, men and women will never fully receive forgiveness from heaven. They'll never grow in spiritual maturity. And, dare I say, they will never be humble enough to fully enter into the presence of God. Because unforgiveness is a selfish, prideful thing. And that is at enmity with the characteristics of God. Power of forgiveness. Dropping the chains that restrict free flow of the Holy Spirit, free flow of forgiveness to us from God, free flow of spreading the gospel, and free flow of rebuilding hurt relationships. And then finally, the third point, that there is a turf war over the nations and the peoples of earth. And this is coming from verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> I'll reference back to uh, this thing again. The devil's the god of this world. It's been his turf. You know that those three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness? Those were not just arbitrary. Like, the devil has been the god of this world for a very long time. Most likely since uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, we can talk about that later if you want. So when he tells Jesus, you can have this world if you worship me, it was a legitimate offer. Because he already had dominion. He already had control. He already had authority over the world. Jesus took a different way, right? Because he wasn't going to kowtow to the devil's offer, even though he could have the world. He had come to take it back. Take back the world from the enemy's clutches. And he had to do that through the sacrifice. And Paul even says, had the devil known this plan, the devil would not have allowed that crucifixion to happen. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God did it in such a way, like he shrouded the truth of his plan and scripture in such a way that the best scholars of the day could never figure out what was going on. Which means the devil couldn't figure it out. And the only way that anybody figured it out was after the fact. Like there was no prescience, there was no foreknowledge that could have put together this whole narrative of Jesus going to the cross and redeeming all of mankind, defeating the devil and going to the gates of hell and taking back the keys. Nobody could have foretold that. Because it was so shrouded, so cryptic in the Old Testament that it took Jesus himself coming and saying, oh yeah, because I wrote this. Here's this verse. 
Oh, and here's this thing in Psalm 22. There's that. And there's this thing in, in Deuteronomy uh, 34. And it all ties together, you know, when the road to Emmaus, right, when he's talking to them, and they said, did our hearts not burn with inside us because of the things that he said and these truths that were unveiled? Had the devil known that, he would have known how to stop this process. He didn't. He was blindsided by the cross. And because of that, now the turf war is on, right? And Jesus is using us as agents to slowly take back the world. But the devil is using his agents, also human agents, to try to stop that process. That's why you have so many stories of martyrdoms throughout church history. Like, the devil's not going to lay over and take it. He's going to try to wipe out as much influence as possible. Paul got beheaded, right? Peter crucified upside down. Thomas supposedly went to India, was run through with a spear. So was uh, Mark. Like, they all met a pretty rough end because the devil's trying to stomp them out, right? Like, if I can get rid of those original 12, this thing will stop, right? But he gets rid of the original 12, and then there's 24, and then there's 5,000, and then there's so many more. So that over overturns religion and the Roman Empire, right? I mean, there's a whole history of all of this going on. It's this turf war. That, you know, there's one, one verse, I'm not going to reference it. Paul says, we were once enemies of Christ, and now we're children. Now we are servants partnering with him. <clears throat> Paul uses uh, the phrase that we are um, the procession. Let me go find that. Verse 14, God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. I'll focus on that term, triumphal procession. In ancient Rome, which is when Paul's writing this, a victorious general, after he wins his battles, wins his wars, comes to Rome. This is the tradition comes to Rome, has a whole procession with him. He has all of the conquered soldiers, all of the conquered peoples, like he'll take the men, women, and the children, put them into his entourage, take all of the war booty, all of the riches they found. So he'll take him and his army and his captives and the riches and have a huge parade in Rome that leads up to the emperor's palace. And this is a sign of strength, a sign of glory, a sign of honor for the general. Now, in that, in that situation, eventually the foes will be sold off as slaves throughout the Roman Empire, which is a whole different thing to the slavery that we think of in America. That's a whole other thing. And the booty gets divided usually among the soldiers. A big tribute goes to, to the Caesar. But the foes are sold off as slaves. In Jesus' conquering... We are all conquered. When the Holy Spirit comes, we surrender our lives, right? We surrender our wills to Jesus. <laughs> because we were enemies of heaven. We were enemies of Jesus. So we're now in the procession because we surrendered. But the difference is, we don't get sold off into slavery. We don't get sold off into like a despicable life. We are then trained up to join his work. We become his soldiers. We become his agents. We become his family. So we now join Jesus partnering with the work, partnering with the mission. 
And Paul uses the, uh, the term here describing the spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And let's look at the aroma thing. Because when I first read this as a teenager, I was like, this, what does this mean? Like aroma of life or aroma of death? Like, it took me a while to kind of think through this process because it just, sometimes there's just some weird phrases in the Bible. And this is one of them, right? This and along with the other about like dashing the baby's heads against the stones. It's a whole other weird one. That's for another message altogether, right? There's some weird things. And this one struck me as kind of weird. And so I, after I give some thought to it, you know, sometimes I'll go read a commentary, see what other smart people are thinking about this. <sighs> this is my understanding. That to those who walk with Christ, anybody else who walks with Christ, who has the Holy Spirit inside of them, there's a resonance, right? Just like the foundation of a good friendship. You know, it starts with you two, right? Like, like there's that one odd thing that you both have an interest in. And it's kind of a formation for a friendship. There's that commonality. It's kind of like that, right? So I'm walking around and I, and I might drop a phrase like, yeah, we're created in God's image. And somebody's like, yes, because Jesus redeemed us, right? Like, okay, I know somebody's on par, right? That's how I found out my, my boss at work was on par. I'm like, all right. That's, that's, that's a good common ground to build on, right? So we produce this aura, this aroma of life. So we exude these characteristics that we associate with life in Christ. We value what Jesus values. We enjoy the covenant blessings with God. There's that commonality. So there's that there's a sense of camaraderie, right? Aroma of life. Because we have the living God inside of us. But then there's this aroma of death thing, which is... What? What? A, aroma of death. So Paul says that to those not being redeemed in Jesus, who are perishing, is the, the term that he uses, we exude the characteristics of everything that they in their nature has come to abhor, right? So we honor and we value self-sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven. Somebody who's not following Jesus thinks that's just nuts. It's just total crazy. Why would you sell off everything? Why would you give up everything for this fantasy kingdom in the sky? Right? It just doesn't make sense. That value system is mismatched. Right? Like I value taking care of my kids more than anything else. As a single man, there was a part of me that thought that like, all that time and attention towards kids is distracting from the work of the gospel. So it borders on idolatry, right? That was a legit thought that I had 20 years ago. Uh, my perspective has changed over the years because the, pri because the priorities of heaven, right? You start seeing that Raising your kids and, and investing in your kids is not distracting from the ministry. It's a prime part of the ministry now, Amen. you know? And so that's something that, that we learn and we grow in. Somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord, right? I've got a family member who's, you know, got his kids. His, one of his big things in the evening is to go and join his friends on online video gaming, guy's in his 30s, right? And he's got kids, right? Uh, so I'm like, well, that, what about the time with the kids, right? Has a different value system. 
and it's to be honest, it's hard for me not to judge, right? Like I, I am not. I try not to be a judgmental person, and I have challenges sometimes, and that's a challenge for me, right? And I understand he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't understand the priorities of heaven, and this is a value system for him. And working through that, so the idea for him, this is like this is his break. This is his getaway. This is his distressor. So for him to come to the concept that I, when I became a Christian, realized that video games were so time-consuming, borderline addictive, that I got rid of all my systems. To this day, I don't have a video game system in the house. I haven't had one since I was in my early 20s. Why? Because my value system was the kingdom of heaven, right? And pursuing that and putting my mind around the kingdom of heaven, putting my time around something that is a little bit more eternal. But for him to see my lifestyle and my decisions on that, where this is one of his values, it just seems like lunacy. I could never do that. We'll take a more more political uh, uh, social anxiety thing. Look at the difference between meat eaters and, and vegans. Like those value systems are at odds with each other. Like I'm not going to say like one is better than the other. I have got my opinions. I'm a meat eater. I'm just going to say it. Um, but there are people who legitimately believe that, that eating vegetables and, and only animal-based or, or plant-based things is the way to go. What happens when those value systems come in contact with each other? I mean, it's like oil and water or like magnesium and water, if you guys know anything about chemistry. Magnesium does not like water. If you have a Volkswagen and your engine catches on fire, don't put water on it because it'll make the fire worse. Just, just saying. Um, that's, that's your chemistry 101 for the day. So you've got these, these opposing viewpoints, these opposing value systems. All right, so now I'm going to bring it back to, to this because I've gone too long on these examples. The kingdom of heaven has a value system for eternal life which is more valuable than life on earth. And in the worldly value system, or the satanic value system, you've got a value system that's built on self-gratification and self-pleasure. And there might be family and and children in that 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 gets wrapped up. The value systems are mismatched because you're still living for the here and the now, the this-worldly entity as opposed to something eternal. So when you lose the eternal perspective, your value system is based on everything in the material world, in the here and now. Even in the Greek world, their only way of maintaining a sense of immortality was either to get glory in battle or to have children. It's the only way that the the ancient Greek world knew that, that you could live on eternally was through your progeny. Christianity flipped that. It said your only way to get eternal life is through your heavenly father. Yes, have kids. Yes, fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And your priority is the kingdom of heaven. Your priority is getting your children into the kingdom of heaven as well. So there's this divergence. So what happens when they come together? One, one group is going to find the other group completely odious, right? Stench, death. It's a sacrifice of everything that I hold near and dear. All my value systems are disrupted by this viewpoint. So it is offensive to me. It is 
the stench of death in a way. And so that's where this aroma of life, this aroma of death comes in. Just living Christian character, Christian values in a relationship with God is enough to make other people see your life who are not being redeemed and find that as, as a stench of death, as an, something that's odious, as something that is repulsive. Just like if I were to walk into a catacomb and there was a fresh corpse there, that would be pretty odious. Just saying. I mean, like, even, even Lazarus, when he died, right? Jesus said, rose the tomb away. Roll the tomb, roll the stone away from the tomb, and what's the sister say? But Lord, he stinketh. You know, to use the uh, the King James, like he's going to stink. I mean, even though we put the bombing fluid and stuff on all that, it's going to stink, right? And that's that's this contrast between those who are in Jesus and those who are not in Jesus. Divergent value systems. So, in conclusion, this is a. Pretty quick one, and just wham, bam, 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 right? So in conclusion, we see that forgiveness is a non-negotiable in the spiritual warfare for the kingdom of heaven. has to happen. There is no getting into the kingdom of heaven if we're not willing to forgive. It's clear as day. If we're unforgiving, we will not be forgiven by God. And if we're not forgiven by God, we are in the grasp, in the control and under the tools of the devil and all of the other rebellious divine beings that are fighting against God. When we don't grab onto forgiveness, we are partnering, in a sense, with the devil and limiting or inhibiting the spread of the gospel and, and hurrying Jesus back to the earth. There's a lot riding on that. Two, the power of forgiveness is the power to keep the influence of God's enemies out of our lives and our families. If you want your families to be whole, happy, healthy, and like in healthy relationships, teach them to practice forgiveness and live that example with your own life. When you get upset, when you get offended, first you address it, and then you forgive. And you know what? There might be some people that are just so narcissistic that they won't apologize. You forgive them anyway. Because I think it was Mark Twain that says, unforgiveness is basically giving somebody else free rent in your mind. Like, like they get to take up all your mental space. Or that it's poisoning yourself thinking the other people is going to suffer the, the effects of it. Like you're just hurting yourself with unforgiveness. Three, there is a war for this world between God and the devil and his minions. And there's no on the fence. There, there's no on the fence. You're either in Jesus' camp or you're in the devil's camp. It's one or the other. Now, if, you're, if you don't even believe in the devil, guess what? You're in his camp. If you believe in the devil but you don't follow Jesus, then you're in his camp. If you believe in Jesus and you're unforgiving, and you're in the devil's camp. Like, you got a choice to make, right? Like the whole baptism thing, this is, I know, out of, the, out of the thin air, the whole baptism thing originally was a change of allegiance to a deity. That's what it was. It was going into the water, being baptized, being crucified with Christ in the water, coming out. But even in the earliest um, recitations, the prayers that you would pray, 
before you got baptized, there's an element in renouncing the devil and his, his ilk and their claim on your life. Like it is a clear break in loyalty from the devil to loyalty with Jesus. That's what baptism was all about. We've kind of lost that language in our non-liturgical settings because we don't use the formal stuff. But that's essentially what baptism is, is that we are aligning ourselves. We're drawing a line in the sand and saying, I am aligned with Yahweh. I am aligned with Jesus, and I am no longer partnering with the devil. I'm no longer partnering with, with his gods, with his little deities. It's Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's my allegiance. That's my alliance. So this is all part of that. And when we believe Jesus rescues us from the enemy, we believe in him, we accept his sacrifice. When we're rescued, we go from being enemies of Jesus to, to partnering with his mission. We're now co-heirs. Right? Paul calls us co-heirs and brethren. And finally, Christian character to other Christians is refreshing and life-giving. Christian character to those who are not serving Jesus can be very repulsive. And we're kind of seeing that in, in the mainstream today, that there's a lot of repulsivity toward Christianity. It's been going on for decades. It's, it's really coming to a point if we see it. But that's, that's essentially what's going on. So, are we with Jesus or are we not with Jesus? Are we forgiving or are we not forgiving? Whose tools are we under the influence of? That's the question. So as I wrap up here, um, anybody that's uh, listening on the podcast, anybody here who's never had this experience with Jesus, who's maybe never heard this before, um, and you want more information or you're interested in exploring this, first thing you can do is you can say this. And, and you can say it inside your head. God knows your thoughts. You don't have to say it out loud. You can if you want. But if you just repeat these words, Jesus I've heard some interesting things today. And I'm curious about what you offer. Will you reveal yourself to me that I may know if you are real or not? And if you are real, show me that I can make a decision. Amen. And that's it. If you said that, expect Jesus to show himself one way or another. Um, because he's good at that. If you have other questions, um, if you've prayed that and you want more information, you can always find a Christian that you know and ask them about it. And if you don't know any Christians, you can always email us here at uh, our church email address, info at tgpchicago.org. Once again, that's info at tgpchicago.org. And uh, one of our ministers would be more than glad to get back with you to answer any questions you have. And so with that, Fine's going to lead us in a final uh, worship song. And uh, then we'll wrap up. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you, and have a great week.